Welcome to the Ben Larry podcast. In this episode, my school friend Mark James is going to tell us about his personal journey with different forms of therapy, and we're particularly going to focus on the use of psychedelics as a therapeutic tool. And Mark participated in a clinical trial in which they were testing the effects of psilocybin, which is the active compound in magic mushrooms. And Mark's going to tell us all about that. If you know anybody else that would make a good podcast guest, then please direct them to benlarry.com slash podcast guest. Enjoy the show. So welcome to the podcast, Mark James. How are you doing today? Yeah, very good. Thank you, Ben. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm generally really, really good. Got loads of productive projects going on and um, I've got loads of sort of creative sort of output. And this podcast is actually part of the creativity because... Um, you know, you never know where the conversations are going to go. So that's part of the fun, you know. Sure, sounds good. And so, you, <laughs> I don't know if you can summarise for our listeners what we're going to be talking about, but I think you were telling me about the, the multiple modalities or different forms of therapy, why each of them can offer something different. And you were telling me your story. And I don't know where to begin, but where do you want to begin? Yeah, Um so, uh, maybe if I do like a, I'm going to attempt to do a 30 second introduction to me, but then it might turn into a few minutes yeah, and sure. I'll let you use your editorial discretion to, uh, to cut that down. Yeah. But, um, so I, um, the, the, so what we're going to be talking about today, I, I definitely don't espouse to be an expert in, um, it's something that I'm, um, an avid amateur and um, a, a passionate and learned amateur, I would say. Mm. Um, so, so I would say treat whatever I say today as just this one man's opinion, and it may be interesting and or useful. It, it, it might not be. Um, so, I, when I was about about ten years ago, I was on I was on the dole, and um, I I had quite a lot of freedom in my life, and I and I felt like I had quite a high um, hedonic set point now a hedonic set point is like your um, natural dis like do you have a natural disposition to be happy or sad some people just seem to be happier and um, some people tend to be sadder and if you tend to be happier then one way of describing that is you have a high hedonic set point so generally I was quite happy little would get me down and um, even though, you know, I was on the dole, I wasn't earning lots of money, blah, 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 blah. And then over the last 10 years, I've been fortunate enough to work all over the world and, and you know, a reasonable salary, um, particularly, you know, giving, given that I came from um, a background where I was homeless and didn't know what I was going to do with my life. So, so now I'm in a fortunate position where I'm earning decent money and can provide for my family. But with each... Um, over the past like three years, I would say, I've, my my hedonic set point and my like natural disposition to happiness has just been uh, decreasing and decreasing and decreasing, um, to the point where um, about a year ago I was feeling really, really, really low. Um, so my interest currently is in how can I help as much of human humanity as possible to achieve this a fancy greek word eudaimonia but it, it kind of means flourishing so how can i help more people to to flourish and um, just interrupt if i'm rambling um and then there seems to be like a a the way in which i think um or the the, the greatest opportunity to help humanity flourish seems to be to reduce mental suffering 
Um, so over the past couple of years, I've been trying to understand for me personally and then for other and then for the rest of humanity, how can what is the best way to mitigate mental suffering? And then I've been trying out each of these different modalities, I guess, is one way of describing them. Um, and they kind of fall into these different buckets. And again, this is just m my understanding of how you would approach changing someone's mental suffering I, I don't know if this is necessarily like the what the scientific communicate uh, community would, would agree is is the way to describe these different things but you've got um understanding why you're thinking the things that you're thinking so that is where psychotherapy comes in and you try to like uncover from your past why you're thinking th what you're thinking example um, give us an example it, just so people grasp yeah, so um, it might be that you, I don't know, you've got a bad relationship with your romantic partner and you always tend to behave in a certain way. And one way of understand, or one way of approaching that, the, the way that you're interacting with that person and then the pain that it causes you is to understand that, because, okay, so, so I'll use a real example from my life, from my actual psychotherapy. Yeah. Um, it only dawned on me after about six months of psychotherapy that because I'd had a relatively disruptive childhood, particularly the, the formative years, and it tends to be the early years are more influential on your psyche than the later years. Is that um, up to so age seven, to, is it? And so the first, supposedly the first four years are the most critical. Um, and then I, I guess there's probably a... Um, a, a compounding decrease in impact as you get older mm. um but so I, yeah i i'd been to it only occurred to me in psychotherapy um this was about a, a couple of months ago that um i'd been to something like five primary schools and the consequence of that is every time i went to a new school there were all these like cohorts of individuals like these little groups of people that had got together in their little friendship cliques and i was never able to like infiltrate those friendship cliques so i always sort of felt like a bit of an outsider i didn't really feel like i belonged anywhere mm. and then once i i sort of understood that uh, my lack of belonging anywhere how that manifested itself in my how I behave with my work colleagues and how I behave with my wife. Like that was a really useful thing to understand. Mm. So, so that's kind of your, your psychothera psychotherapeutic route, understanding why you're thinking the, the things that you're thinking. And then another would be to change the relationship with the thoughts that you're having. And there's lots of different ways that you could do that. So mindfulness, meditation, um, they tend to, um, that I think most um, seasoned meditation practitioners would, would suggest that there is no goal. There is nothing that you should be a that you should be striving for. But it tends to be that you reach a point of awareness where your um, the, the the subjective part of your mind, where your thinking thoughts, you decouple yourself from that relationship. So you change the relationship to the thoughts that you're having. And then another way of changing your relationship to the thoughts you're having is with cognitive behavioral therapy. And there's lots of different versions of this. But again, it might be um, whenever I've got a one to one with my boss or whenever I'm going home to see my wife, I tend to feel this way and I tend to behave this way. So you'll develop techniques that help you change the relationship that you've got to those thoughts and feelings so again psychotherapy understanding why you're thinking those thoughts 
um, cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness are changing the relationship to the thoughts as they occur. Mm. And then you've got the psychopharmacological route, which is um, I'm going to ingest some substances or chemicals that will change the uh, chemistry of my brain. And the most common version now that this is what most people that are, that are clinically depressed um, uh, will be using, or rather lots of them will be using, are SSRIs, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And basically that just means that as your body produces serotonin, which makes you feel happy, it, your body then reabsorbs it. And then these SSRIs, these drugs that some people that are um, having uh, depression medication take, they stop your body from reabsorbing the serotonin. So then you have kind of this like um, a flooding of, of, of serotonin. So the, the third approach then, just to reiterate, is to change the, chemi the, the chemicals in your brain um, to sort of force you to be in a, a happier mood by overdosing with serotonin um and then the the most interesting um way to approach the, uh, sorry so there's there's a fourth which is kind of understanding what influences how your body is producing these chemicals and um, physiologically so knowing that if you haven't had enough sleep your body behaves in a certain way or knowing that if you eat certain foods then that will um, inhibit your body's ability to uh, deal with stress and then increases in stress uh, have a negative impact on your serotonin so so uh, the, the fourth approach is just like understanding kind of like academically what you can do to better prepare your body to deal with the stresses of the world yeah. and then the, the fifth and, and again there might be a sixth and a seventh and maybe the taxonomy of how i'm dis, uh, describing all of this would be different for other people but the fifth for me is using um psychedelics as a way to um it it, it often both increases the serotonin in your, in your body but i think much more importantly it allows you to view yourself objectively rather than subjectively mm. and there's lots and lots and lots of literature that that describes what is essentially like indescribable but that there's also a lot of um evidence that suggests that using psychedelics within a therapeutic environment so not going to a party and taking a dose of lsd or mdma but actually using it in a therapeutic environment has m potentially uh, very very promising signs of being able to cure lots of people's depression and anxiety and addiction which might seem a little counterintuitive that if you're addicted to heroin you might take a psychedelic drug to cure your addiction um but uh yeah so, so psychedelics for me um i've tried all of those five different approaches and um psychedelics that definitely seem to offer the most significant opportunity for a bunch of different reasons but i fear that i've been rambling on there for a few minutes so i'm going to shut up and let you ask me a follow-up question no that's great that was a wonderful introduction and summary and so i've got loads of questions so while we're on the psychedelics i mean <laughs> well, uh, what's the best one <laughs> <laughs> um so I, I i i'll talk about what the scientific literature seems to say and mm. um, i think thinking of the in fact let, let me just start by giving a little bit of background to my experience with psychedelics because that might help 
listeners understand you know wh- where I'm coming from. Mm. So I've I, I um, tried mushrooms when I was I think 21 or 22 on a trip to Amsterdam, and that was jolly good fun. And that's all I remember of it. I've never bought drugs illicitly. I've never taken anything other than cannabis about 10 times in my life. And every time I really disliked it. So I am not a a hardened and ardent drug user. I'm definitely, most definitely not. Uh, It was when listening to um, or reading some books from meditation practitioners that talked about some of the positives um, associated with uh, psychedelic use in that it can enhance your meditation practice then I started to do a little bit more reading um, and the more I read about the um, this renaissance of scientific work with psychedelics so in fact let me give you a very very brief history of psychedelics and um, like LSD um, or rather the western world started to use psychedelics in the sort of 40s and 50s it was um a lot of um, scientific work went into using psych- uh, psychedelics to help with um, depression and, and other illnesses up until the 90s when um, uh, the I think it was the Reagan administration declared this war on drugs. And then that is like the, the reason that we have um, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms and LSD and all of these drugs that are actually like non-toxic and non-addictive as schedule one drugs all stems from the American government's want to dissuade people from taking psychedelics because it seemed to negatively impact their propensity to want to go to war for the American government. Mm-hmm. So, and then what we saw at the very end of the 1990s and then up until today is a renaissance of scientific work with psychedelics. And that started at John Hopkins University um, in the States and it's now their studies going on all over the world. Um, and my, uh, the way that I sort of approached this was it, like all of the scientific literature that I was reading seemed to stack up. Um, I'm reasonably experienced in reading research, so I can kind of tell, I've got a rough idea of like, yeah, this looks like it's um, empirically valid, this doesn't. So it all seemed to stack up. And I, at the time, was feeling more and more depressed myself. So I like, right, what, what can I do because all of the, like all psychedelics pretty much are still illegal. So how am I going to, I, I don't want to go and buy something off of the streets because I have no idea what I'm taking. I don't have any relationships to that community. So I wouldn't even know how to find a drug dealer or how to go onto the dark web. Um, so then I stumbled across a scientific trial that was um, going on at King's College London in January uh, this this January 2019, and was extremely lucky that I was accepted onto the trial, and um, and that was then my first ever kind of proper experience of um, using psychedelics. I don't know what dose because it's a placebo double blind with three different doses, um, and uh, so I yeah. So so all I know is I've taken some amount of psilocybin in a therapeutic environment, and it has been helpful. Um, um, so going back to your question um, of what is the best, um, there it seems to be, or there seems to be evidence that uh, substances like ibogaine and iboga, which um, uh, are not particularly well known, um, 
they come or they're mainly used in uh, like African tribes use them ceremonially. They seem to be particularly effective for um, completely eradicating all of the um, the cravings for heroin addiction or, or opiate addiction. Right. So you could be a long term heroin user. And supposedly you have like one or two doses of these drugs and your addiction is not cured, but you no longer have any cravings for those drugs. So it's much easier then for you to sort of wean yourself off the drugs when you're no longer like physically addicted to them. So Iboga and Ibogaine seem to be good for opiate addiction. Um, LSD, uh, in fact, the, 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 the drug that has... Um, that is closest to being um, signed, that, that, that has been, that is closest to having the rubber stamp of approval to be used in a legitimate clinical setting and legalized is MDMA, which is um, the active ingredient in ecstasy. In fact, when people refer to ecstasy, it, it tends to be MDMA that they're referring to. So using MDMA um, in a therapeutic environment for PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder, um, I've probably got that slightly wrong, but uh, that, that is the um, it, it seems like within the next year or two. So by 2021, say that that will be a legal form of therapy for and highly, highly effective for treating people with PTSD. So if you're a war veteran and you're coping with some of the trauma of war or you witness some horrible accident or you've been sexually assaulted, like whatever the version of PTSD is that you've got or whatever the, the cause of that PTSD was for you, MDMA used in a, a, a therapeutic environment seems to be incredibly effective at essentially like curing your PTSD. It allows you to view what happened in a, um, a, a, I'm going to say an objective frame of mind rather than subjective, mm. but I'm sure that there's a, a better explanation for how it works. So PTSD seems to be uh, very well treated with MDMA. And then most of the work that's going into treating depression um, is psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Uh, that is the preferred um, chemical of choice. And that's mainly due to the fact that a a trip on psilocybin an experience with psilocybin tends to last around six to eight hours so within a clinical study it's fairly easy for the people that are working on that study to do within their work day and um, so it's a strange situation that that is the what that's the, that's the reason why <laughs> psilocybin has been chosen because LS, LSD can last like 16 hours. So if you start your day as a psychiatrist or a therapist working on a study and that the, your client doesn't finish his trip for 16 hours, it's just impractical to um, to use a, a, to, to study. So, yeah. So psilocybin for depression. Right, psilocybin for depression, MDMA for addiction, PTSD, uh, PTSD. Uh, PTSD, yeah. But but from what I've understood, all of them seem to offer some promise in all. They seem to work similarly well in for all things. It's not like PTSD. Uh, sorry, you can't treat PTSD with LSD or psilocybin. My hunch would be that they will all offer some 
um, fair, probably fairly significant benefit. It just like the the the, the scientific literature is still or the, the the amount of scientific work is still relatively small so people have been trying to nail like can we nail this relationship between mdma and ptsd and then probably once that's been legalized then they might start doing studies into okay cool now can we see if psilocybin works and can we see if um ketamine works and yeah what's the difference between the ones that are synthetically created as opposed to the ones that come directly from the plant you know is is there a distinction yeah. there? So um, there seems to be differing opinions here. My the, the sense that I get is those that come from a background that have been using the non-synthesized products, so like ayahuasca or um, like used in ceremonies. So if you're a shaman, then th- those people seem to have a predisposition to the. the <laughs> form of the drug that they're used to um whereas the the scientific community seems to suggest that there is no difference so using um so dmt um which is the kind of the active ingredient in the ayahuasca brew um, i don't know if you've come across ayahuasca before yeah i've done it yeah you've done it have you yeah twice Ah, wow. Okay, cool. Well, then we've got lots to talk about. Um, so, so DMT is the thing that gives you the experience, and the ayahuasca that's in the brew, um, that is just there to allow you to take the DMT in your stomach. So, if you just took DMT, if like orally now, your stomach, um, the compounds in your stomach would stop the DMT from working. The ayahuasca plant just stops that part of your stomach from disabling the dmt so uh, sorry that was like a little side note so the ayahuasca doesn't actually do anything um psychedelic it just allows the psychedelic to work and mm. um, so yeah people that have tried uh synthesized and non-synthesized um dmt and also synthesized and non-synthesized 5-meo dmt so 5-meo dmt is um the venom from this i think it's called the sonoran desert toad and it's a toad that produces um yeah this venom that can then be like vaped or smoked so so people that have tried both the the actual venom from the toad and then the synthesized version they seem to suggest that there is negligible if any difference between the synthesized version and the naturally occurring one and then for lsd there is no naturally occurring LSD. It is very similar to naturally occurring compounds, but it can only be made um, by humans. So, um, what? I really want to ask you a follow-up question about your ayahuasca experience. Oh yeah, go for um, it. Yeah. So, how did that come about? How did you? Yeah. T- tell me the story behind how and why you chose to do ayahuasca twice. It was about 10 years ago, it was 2009, and I've always sort of dipped, had one foot in the kind of hippie alternative communities anyway, because I've always been a bit different, and um, I had a lot of friends that were living around the Glastonbury, Somerset region, and one thing led to another, and I just got invited, there was no particular reason that I wanted to go, it's just, um, you know, somebody said, oh, do you fancy doing ayahuasca, and I'd heard about it, I'd read about it, you know, I'd seen documentaries, and youtube clips about it and my girlfriend at the time invited me so we went and did it 
Um, it was a ceremony setting. It was in a year in someone's garden. It was people I knew. So, you know, it was it was a good experience. No problems. Um, I don't know if the batch was weak or something because it didn't have a strong effect on me. Right. And it, Interesting. It, it, it could have been just the batch because I understand that, you know, people often have a very strong journey with it, you know? Um, yeah. The, the the effect it had on my mind was interesting. I was just telling Graham this the other day. We did a podcast episode. And all I could think about, I, I was in a very shallow state. Other people were having sort of massive trips and puking up and having all kinds of journeys. But I was in a very mellow and, and shallow sort of altered state. No visuals, nothing. And all I could think about was I just wanted to go and watch Sky News and see what the stock market was doing. Wow. Which is interesting because you can interpret that sort of however you want, really. I mean, maybe it it was almost like I wasn't really interested in the process or the journey. And I, I, I had the sensation of kind of feeling a bit bored and thinking, ah, oh, fuck this. I, I want to go and see what's going on on the news. You know, I'm interested in politics mm. and economics and stuff. And so, I mean, maybe that's the lesson I got from it. Like, that's my true nature. That's what interests me. Maybe that's what it was showing me. Or maybe it was a weak batch. And I don't know. You can interpret it very in different ways, you know? So, um, I, I don't know whether this was true for your situation but you can definitely um it, it seems like there's evidence that you can no, no matter how large well i I, um, I might say that back actually even if you're taking a large dose of a well-known psychoactive substance um where you, you know that there is no question of whether the batch was um weak or not like if you're taking lsd if you're mm, not able to commit to the experience you can kind of like turn it off so so i've heard of people that like they're with a group of friends they've all taken lsd it's all the same batch but but and and but they're nervous about something because one of their friends is having a bad trip or something and they seem to be able to like just turn the experience off or it seems to just have like close to no effects whatsoever right. so i'm wondering if if there was something that was stopping you from going into the experience and maybe some of your friends were, or, or you were around people that you weren't so sure about, or it was an unfamiliar environment, or I don't know, there could be a bunch of different things. And maybe it just, it literally had no effects on you whatsoever. And there's nothing to be learned about the fact that you wanted to go and watch the stock market at all because the ayahuasca wasn't doing anything. Um, but I don't know. So, so that sort of just leads me on to something that is worth mentioning mm. like for people that are interested in taking psychedelics. The most important component, if, you, if you're taking psychedelics because you want it to help you with something, so you're using it therapeutically, more important than the compound that you're taking is the set and setting. So this is an, a, a phrase that you'll hear again and again and again within the psychedelic community so the set is the mindset that you come to the experience with so what are my expectations what am i hoping to get out of this what is all of the research that i've been reading about this how is that informing how my experience is going to go and then the setting is am i with people that i trust uh, ideally love 
I feel safe with? Is the environment like clinical or am I a, like if I'm at a party when there's lots of people surrounding me and lots of chaos? And so, so the set and setting has a massively, massively influential um, impact on the experience, mm. more so than the compound itself, most people would say. Um, so it may, like, I would just use that as a, a guide for anyone thinking of doing this. Please, please, please look into set and setting. Mm. But that it, that could be the reason why your ayahuasca experience didn't go according to plan. But you said you had two experiences, right? So, so what happened on the other? The second one was not long after, and I can't remember how long after. It might have been within six months or within a year. Right. I can't remember. Um, I got a, a feeling it was the same batch because it had been brought over from South America by, you know, particular individuals, and they were sort of doing a bit of a tour, and it was a sort of similar group of people so i don't remember but i think it was the same batch a little bit a little bit deeper i had i had sort of more visuals i think i went a bit deeper you know nothing strong nothing no real strong you know still a pretty gentle ride nothing really stood out Mm. about it um but you know that was a long time ago you know a lot's happened since then 10 years has passed you know i'm a i'm a different person i'd be up for doing it again i'm not attached to any story like i don't have any story that i'm kind of resistant to the compound or anything like that it's it's not that it it genuinely Mm. was that that was my particular experience of those occasions so i i'd be up for trying again you know yeah interesting so if if you were wanting to do it again and you wanted to approach it um, like scientifically, as in you wanted to, to come away from the experience knowing that, oh yeah, I definitely had a, a decent batch, for, for example, there's a few different ways that you could approach that. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you don't have a good network of drug dealers that you could trust, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so find a clinical clinical trial that, you could get onto and they're quite rare and the you know they tend to to select maybe like somewhere between one and ten percent of the applicants but if you're lucky enough then find a clinical trial um and i can probably send you a link later that you could then put on the notes of the podcast for like how you go about finding clinical trials cool and then there's about 10 or 15 um organizations that run legal experiences for therapy um so if like i I, i've just signed up for one um a couple of weeks ago Uh, in fact the day that i saw you last um um where yeah that they'll they will give you a legal and known dose of typically psilocybin and and then that will be accompanied with two three four five days uh of experience um including uh so nothing in the uk because it's not legal so they all they are all in either jamaica or um uh, the netherlands and so obviously i'm going to the netherlands given that i'm in the uk um there's probably others that i'm not aware of but i i know of about 10 or so in the netherlands different organizations that that do this uh, and then a few in jamaica um, no, they, they're quite costly. So I think they um, to do an experience with one of these organizations, you're looking at probably 600 to 1500 pounds, mm. depending on a bunch of different things. So they're not cheap. 
but if you're suffering and you can afford it and i fit into both of those categories then uh, it might be worth you know something to be explored yeah absolutely yeah i would consider that uh you know i mean maybe not this week but it's something i would think about and, <laughs> and research and you know, yeah potentially do um Another way of um, so buying uh, LSD testing kits that will tell you whether what, what you've bought as LSD whether that's safe or not and whether it is LSD. Buying those testing kits is legal. Um, so again, I can send you a link afterwards. So so if you wanted to try LSD and you were worried about um, you wanted to make it as scientific as possible, but you couldn't afford to go on one of these um, experience retreats, you could try and um, acquire some LSD illegally. I'm not suggesting that you do that, but I'm just saying that is an option. And then um, uh, use one of these testing kits to, to check whether it's legit or not. And then the most important thing you want to do then is, like I say, try and um, optimize the set and setting so take it with if you know people that are experienced drug takers and you trust them then take it with them in an environment that you're you feel comfortable in but really that set and setting thing is is seems to be really 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 crucial so you've signed up to this thing and it's for mm. your it's a psilocybin one is it that's right yeah so they actually use um organic truffles rather than when i did the clinical study it was with um synthetically produced psilocybin at massive expense because it was a scientific trial and they can't they, they have to know that you're getting exactly the same dosage as everybody else um so when i do this uh this experience with this organization they're a very well-known organization they've done hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of these and they've always used the same supplier to to use the truffles so i've got reasonable confidence that i'm going to get approximately the dose that i think i'm going to get and what's their name uh so it's, they're called the psychedelic society there are branches of the psychedelic society all over the world um uh i know that in the uk they've got quite a strong uh strong holding or whatever the expression is in london and bristol and they're looking i think to start something down in cornwall i, I think or devon um and they run their retreats in the Netherlands, but it's the UK branch of the Psychedelic Society that runs them. I see. And um, I'm actually working with the Psychedelic Society on like a little side project at the moment. Um, so that's sort of how I, I came across it. I'm, I'm trying to, like, I, I want my life to, I want more of my life to be spent on this subject, like scientific psychedelic use. Um, so I've been trying to reach out to different organizations to figure out how can someone with the skills that I've got help this movement? Um, so, yeah, so I'm doing with the Psychedelic Society um, in October. So, uh, yeah, maybe you and I can have a catch-up call in a couple of months and I'll let you know what effect, if any, it had on me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to hear more about that. But also, I was curious, like, um, what other experiences, psychedelic things do you plan on doing in the future? Like, are you going to try them all? Um. I don't know. I, I, I definitely want to like ease myself in. I, I want to start in as empirically as possible, so which I was lucky enough to do with this clinical study. And then the next level kind of towards using it recreationally whenever I want seems to be doing it with a group of individuals or with an organization that does this regularly. And um, I've, I've heard 
very, very, very powerful things can come from 5-MeO-DMT, which is this um, this the venom from the Sonoran Desert Toad. I, I've mainly um, heard about that from listening to Mike Tyson because he does it quite regularly by the same. Oh, bit. really? Does he? Yeah. I didn't know that. Ah, okay, interesting. Um, so it, 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 I, I would just preface this with um if you want to any like more about psychedelics from someone more educated and better informed than me uh, i would always recommend starting with a book called the psychedelic uh, sorry um how to change your mind by michael pollan who's a new york times journalist it's beautifully written it talks you through the history of psychedelics what the current scientific community is doing and then um his own experiences with psilocybin um i think mescaline um lsd and friday meo dmt um so yeah i i i'd like i don't know i i, I my, my goal is to suffer less mentally um if i if this one experience with psilocybin does that then great and then maybe i'll use the occasional bit of psilocybin in the future i've heard mixed things about microdosing with lsd but that could be something useful for me in the future i'm not i'm open-minded i'm not um i'm open to trying anything i think but but i've heard a, a few not horror stories but words of or things that make me slightly cautious about trying 5-meo dmt in that it can be more powerful than you can kind of comprehend and then has like lasting negative effects um, but that that could be that those people that I've heard that from didn't have the right set and setting and then also didn't have any form of integration afterwards. So integration is the process of you essentially trying to make sense of what happened with the um, the psychedelic experience. And that integration is it seems to be much better when you're doing it in a therapeutic environment with someone that understands how to do psychedelic integration. Mm -hmm. So that might be a therapist that you would then speak to once a week, month, every six months or something. So um, it could be yeah that these people that have had these like long term negative effects using 5-MeO-DMT just didn't have the right integration or set and setting mm. how about you what, what 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 would you be uh what would your your shopping list be if you were to start experimenting with these things how would you approach it and what would you do next well even though i've done ayahuasca i don't consider myself to have i haven't done anything else so i feel like i would need to start gently and i mm. I, I thought perhaps mushrooms might be like a good place to start do you think mm. yeah definitely uh, the, there seems to be some literature suggesting that starting at a lower dose and working your way up to a higher dose has better effects than going in at a medium or high dose. Mm. So I definitely recommend, as you suggested, starting with something lower. Um, and yeah, mushrooms or psilocybin, that, that seems to be a good entry point. Um, particularly given that in the Netherlands it's legal, so you could you could even arrange your own, I guess, experience retreat um, where you went over there and bought some stuff legally. Uh, so yeah, I, I I would definitely recommend um, or yeah, psilocybin. Sorry, magic mushrooms or psilocybin seems to be um, a good entry point at a reasonably low dose. Yeah, I suppose sort of start at mushrooms and then work up to the toad. Is that is that is that the is that the way it goes or? I don't know that it's useful to have that plan in mind um, where right, I'm going to start here, work up to this and then try this and then try this and then try this. 
for me personally, I'm just going to take each, like I know what the next step is. Yeah. I don't need to know about what comes after that until I need to think about what comes after that. Yeah. Um, if I feel psychologically stable enough to start trying um, LSD and then the toad, then maybe, but I, I don't have a, I, mean, I intentionally don't have a plan of like, how do I get to the toad? I want to get to the toad as quickly as possible. Yeah. That seems to be probably a suboptimal way of approaching things. Yeah, I'm with you. I think I say it kind of tongue in cheek, but I understand what you mean. <laughs> um, why have I never heard the phrase hedonic state? As somebody who's sort of just broadly interested in personal development and popular psychology, why have I never encountered that? Word? I think the only person that can answer that is, is you. Um but, what school of thought uh, does it come from? So, it, so there are different. Right. So, so the way that I discovered psychedelics was via meditation, and the reason that I got into meditation was um, because about two or three years ago, I got into philosophy. So I'm relatively ill-educated, left school with no qualifications, never thought about reading any like philosophical literature, but then found myself stumbling into uh, psychology and philosophy a couple of years ago and uh, one of the branches of like, ancient greek philosophy is hedonism which most people will think of today as um people that are in pursuit of ultimate pleasure so that's like guys that are interested in or girls that are interested in yachts and ferraris and having loads of money and dining at the finest restaurants in the world. And that's um, a pursuit of hedonism. Um, there's lots of branches, or there are some branches of hedonism that are that also exist for the pursuit of pleasure, but those pleasures are less, um, I'm going to use the word vacuous, but like there's, um, oh gosh, I'm going to try and remember what it's called now. There's a branch of hedonism that says that, the ultimate pleasures are like a nice piece of bread or a bit of cheese and company with your friends and having long and interesting conversations. And, but then those are the things to be pursued. And so you're still trying to pursue pleasure rather than just um, stoicism, which would be sort of the mitigation of suffering. Um, so, so the, this branch of uh, philosophy is part of hedonism in that no you're not trying to mitigate suffering you're trying to maximally pursue pleasure but the pleasure that you're seeking is just a much more i, I guess like real and honest and humble version of pleasure and um, so yeah so the hedonic set points um comes from hedonism and um, which is the pursuit of pleasure um yeah and i don't know where hedonics where the phrase hedonic set point originated but I've read a fair amount or a reasonable amount of positive psychology literature, which gets mixed reports within the psychological community. Um, but um, yeah, that's sort of where I heard about it. And it is basically like, what is, wh where do you sit within the spectrum of all humans in terms of your natural disposition to be happy or sad, I guess. At this point in your journey, what is it that makes you happy um well, how would you define happiness what's the best plan for being happy um so definitely money that is not correlated to happiness past a certain point i think at the moment it's around seventy thousand us dollars once you get past that then there is very little incremental happiness gained from 
each additional dollar that you spend. Um, for me, freedom seems to be really important in, in terms of my happiness. So having a life where I can make the choices that I want to make. Um, but the things that seem to make me genuinely the happiest, and they sound a bit like saccharine and boring, but are like going for a nice walk with my daughter. Or like, like yesterday, I took my four-year-old up to the local park here to do some skateboarding. Um, like just spending time in the company with the... In fact, you know what? Most scientific literature would seem to suggest that the most important thing for your happiness is spending time it, spending time with the people that you love. And that see, seems to be the most impactful thing that you can do if you want to be happier is to have a group of people whom you love and trust and want to spend time with and then spending time with them. Um yeah, which is like a boring but truthful answer. Mm, yeah. And I don't have a large cohort of friends that I kind of spend a lot of time with because I've lived, you know, in different cities and countries. They all tend to be a bit dispersed. So um, that's something that I need to cultivate if I want to be happier, I think. And like one way to do that is to mitigate the amount of suffering that I like mental suffering that I have. And then another is like cultivating more and deeper friendships so mitigating um, suffering as opposed mm. to cultivating happiness there's a distinction yeah, it's there it's not a linear scale it's not like that they're, they're two completely separate ent um, enterprises so it's not like um you um yeah like i say it's not a that the same activities that you do to mitigate suffering are not necessarily, the, are, in fact, are not the same activities that you would do to increase happiness. Right. So it's and like it's like toxins and nutrients, like reducing your intake of toxins is not the same as increasing your intake of nutrients. There you go. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. Thank you. Mm. Um, yeah. But for me, it, it feels like I don't want to worry about um, the the nutrients that I'm consuming until I've sufficiently mitigated the toxins that I'm um, intaking. Um, so, yeah, so, so most of my focus is on mitigating my own suffering um, rather than pursuing more pleasures. But I hope that it will get to a point where there's a, a satisfactory amount of mental suffering in my life i'm not looking to completely eradicate it like that one of the nice things about one of the words i used earlier and um, eudaimonia is it's not a life devoid of suffering that like you will have suffering in your life you will people will die and you will get ill and all of these things will happen and that's totally fine but you're just trying to make the most of your life so I'm not looking to mitigate or to eradicate uh, mental suffering, but I just I definitely want a lot less of it than I currently have. Once I've got to a a position that I'm that I think is satisfactory, I have a satisfactory amount of suffering in my life. Like if bad things happen, I'll still get sad. That's okay, and then I, I'll start to focus a little more on right now. How can I increase the number of pleasurable, um, hedonic things within my life? Yeah. Has everyone got like how it, why is it that some people are more prone to suffering than others? Is that just good luck, bad luck, genetic, um environmental or just a mixture of it all? Like I don't want I don't want to put you in the spot to sort of uh, talk about things that are too personal, but you know, why are you suffering in the first place? 
Yeah, it's really weird. I, I don't think it's in, I'm not sure that it's entirely genetic because for me, like I've changed. So it's not like I was born with one disposition and that stayed with me forever. Like I say, 10 years ago, I was on the doll and I seen my, my memory, which could definitely be false. Like maybe I was really, really unhappy, but I seem to remember being a very happy chap. Um, little would worry me. Yeah, I didn't have a, a, like any money really, but I didn't care that much. Um, and now, ten years hence, I suffer like really from anxiety, particularly work related. Um, and I'm not sure. I suspect that there have been things that that have happened in my life over the course of those ten years that have caused me to become more and more anxious about certain things. Um, Why does so, work cause yeah. you anxiety? Is it related to sort of money and income and supporting your family? No, or, or is it to, to, what? Not, not really. I'm not super... Because I can remember being like on the dole, like Reddit, oh, sorry, the dole is like for people outside of the UK, um, like income support, I guess. So if you don't work, the government gives you money to, to just look for a job. Um, so, uh, yeah, because I can remember what life was like, like that, I'm not afraid of my daughter having to experience that. And I don't think my wife would be particularly pleased, but, um, but yeah, so I, I don't think that, um, the, 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 the reason that I get so much anxiety with work is, I think it's mainly, um, and I don't know how constructive this will be to the conversation, but I don't. I'm worried that I'm just doing a shit job and that nobody likes me. And I think this stems back to what I was describing in my psychotherapy, where I um, went to lots and lots of primary schools and never really developed a cohort of friends. And I don't really have any like close friendships that I see regularly in my life right now. The people that I see most regularly are people at work. And I just constantly feel like I'm disliked and uh, I'm doing a crap job. And I try really hard for that not to be the case. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that is not the case. Perhaps people are ambivalent to my existence, but they don't dislike me. I, I don't know. But the, the con what, whatever the reality is, whether people like me and are happy that I'm there and I think, think that I'm doing a good job or not, the reality, uh, whatever the reality is, the, I still have huge amounts of anxiety that none of those things are true and that people broadly wish I didn't exist. Um, so yeah, I used to like really like myself, but back in when I was on the doll, like I used to have a high opinion of Mark, like, Oh yeah, you're a good kind person. Um, now I think I've got quite a low opinion of myself and I'm not sure how that's come about, but, yeah. um, I'm really hopeful that this experience with psilocybin in October is going to go some ways to uncovering what the, fuck is going on in my head i don't know if you if we're allowed to be explicit yeah um, but yeah 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 i see so yeah i had a kind of journey that was similar but i i had a higher opinion of myself when i was younger and then i Ooh. went through this rough patch where i split up with my girlfriend and then everybody every girl i tried to ask out wasn't interested in me like i i went through this period of like several years where i, I just couldn't get a girlfriend i just didn't yeah. get anywhere i was just getting rejected over and over again left right and center and over a period of several years that it just slowly ground me down and down yeah. and down and down you know it's just like it's like you know it's each one's like a punch to the gut uppercut to the jaw but you know hook 
to the side of the head, you know, just getting beaten, you know, and um, I've, I've largely come out of that now, you know, I've gone through that process and kind of come out the other side and, but, but yeah, you know, it's weird how, you know, in, when I was at school or in my early twenties, sort of up to, and all the way up to that point, I had a really sort of high self-esteem and then it, it took a, it, 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 you know, I received a, a sledgehammer to my self-esteem and, but, you know, and then I've come back up again. So how did you come back out of it? Um, it well, 18 months of therapy. Right. Um, was that CBT psychotherapy? Psychotherapy. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, besides that, nothing in particular, just, just, gen- just building on small successes and gra- just incrementally, just, uh, just incrementally slowly rebuild it you know just small successes you feel a little bit better about yourself more success you know just building momentum back up just just manually um so 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 just manual yeah but it took you know year you know there's a process of several years of rebuilding you know and do you is there a part of you that is like do you genuinely feel that you're um that that uh, that part of your life is behind you now. Like you say that you come out of it. Are you saying that because it's the right thing to say, or it's the thing that you want to hear yourself saying, or do you genuinely feel like no, no, I'm definitely out of this? Yeah, I, I no, I genuinely, on the most part, I am. There's still, there's still echoes. There's like, um, there's, there's still. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's got better and better. I'm pretty much there now. But if if I go back twelve months or or, or eighteen months, no, I, I wasn't. Um, so and yeah, there's no. I don't think there's any way of rushing it. It seems to be a slow process of gradual yeah. improvement. You know. So so that's like now looping back into psychedelics a phrase that I've heard quite a few times is that one therapeutic psilocybin experience is the equivalent of 20 years of therapy. Mm. Um, uh, how true that is, I don't know. Um, I'll hopefully have a better idea in a few months time, but um, yeah, it, 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 I also felt when I was going through therapy that, Oh, this is going to be a slow burn. I'm not going to get any, like, she's not going to tell me anything today that is going to completely transform my psychological suffering. I'm just going to have to stick with this for a few years as you did. Um, but then yes, psychedelics might not be like that. It might be that, that something profound can happen within a day or two. Um, so yeah, it might, might be worth investigating. Oh, it's yeah, really definitely. nice to hear that you've come out of the other side though, and you genuinely seem to be happier was there anything in particular within your therapy that you don't have to talk about what that thing was, but was it, were there any like, like looking back at, at that 18 months of therapy, were there any like big realizations or was it, can you pinpoint what it was that, that, that helped or that was causing you to suffer? Um, it's hard to put my finger on, but um i'll try and boil it down it's like real like basically realizing that certain things are not your fault i think i'd i i'd taken certain things entirely personally as as a as a as a reflection on my identity and self-worth 
and the the process of realizing that that's not the case that it, there's there's a, a mixture of reasons of why things happen you know there's all kinds mm. of reasons um, uh, and it's not it's not just because of my worth or lack of self-worth you know realizing that there was all other factors and also the kind of people the kind of girls i was going for there was a problem there there was like a pattern of me sort of kind of going for people that sort of weren't interested or weren't available and getting over i was getting over emotionally invested like way too quickly and and um you know when it wasn't reciprocated so i i had to deconstruct a lot of patterns I had to stop a lot of my behavioral patterns. So yeah, there's nothing in particular. I don't think it was just a long process of all those little realizations. Mm, interesting. So what's the next step for you then? And, and when do you have a plan or? Um, well, I'm, I'm on a really good track and I've got good momentum now, you know, things are good. I've got loads of good projects on the go that I enjoy. I've got, you know, loads of things I enjoy, loads of, loads of business ventures, much better. Oh yeah. I'll tell you a big part of it. It was like the quality of my friends now is are, are much mm. more aligned to who I am. And, and what that means is I can be myself around them. <coughs> Excuse me. I was really Im immersed in a community because um, I'd spent a lot of time doing circus skills and acrobatics and yoga and stuff. And whilst there is a lot of positive things about that that I found very appealing, also the, 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 a lot of the, the, those communities are very different to how I am. I, I'm kind of ambitious, kind of capitalist kind of person, sort of success-orientated, you know, kind right. of thing. And those communities are sort of you know very far left-leaning anti-capitalist and sort of uh, that have got a completely different set of values to me and and what that really meant for my psychology is i was not able to really be myself around yeah. in, in, and so and that wears you down doesn't it and so now uh, rather than trying to connect with everyone i'm not trying to connect with everyone I'm j i just sort of keep a, a smaller circle of higher quality friends that are more you know more like-minded to me and i'm much happier like that mm. so so what uh, you asked me this question earlier well like what is happiness or how do you become happy what what would your answer to that question be well well i agree with the friendships and companionship like you were saying about earlier you know being around people you love of course you know that that sort of goes without saying it but but also maybe we don't see eye to eye is i've i've always been highly i'm gonna say it, i i get a thrill like succeeding doing a project and the money and the success and i know you said sort of money doesn't correlate to happiness but there's something about the process of the challenge that overcoming the challenge of of making something happen in a business project that is satisfying and fulfilling and i don't think mm. it ends anywhere it's a continual process of more growth challenge overcoming striving creating you know i think that never ends so i don't think it's a question of when i reach x amount then i'll be happy it's more a process of uh constant creative challenge is fulfilling yeah but, but it, could it not be that it doesn't need to be financial the outcome it's just taking on a diff something difficult and essentially like 
um, ma- mastery is typically something that's important within your, your working life, uh, like the, the feeling that like you're mastering something. So it could be that the thing that is gratifying and that you're drawn towards doesn't necessarily have to be correlated to financial outcome. It could be that you, just that you've taken on something really difficult and then succeeded and success in that project happened to be like the financial outcome. But having that money doesn't isn't the thing that is making you happy. It's the fact that you were able to accomplish a very challenging and difficult goal and it just so happened that money was the outcome I, of that. I don't know. No, or, I hear, or maybe not. I, I don't know. I hear what you're saying, but I think financial achievement is satisfying as well because it buys stuff that, you know, I, so. I Yeah, you see what I mean? I'm I like the pursuit of money. Interesting. I'd love to get dig deeper into what it is that you like about that about money what why do you like having well, it, money because it, it it well because it buys stuff but why do you want to why do you want to buy stuff well for once you've reached a point where okay cool i've got a roof over my head i can afford to buy food and i'm comfortable don't need to worry about money anymore why why is it nice to buy stuff well it just never ends and you can help other people then you, you know you can i don't but the helping other people that that is the then I, i'm i'm challenging you not because i necessarily disagree i'm just trying to play devil's advocate mm. i guess but like helping other people that is rewarding in and of itself um having yeah interesting i'm trying to think of like what why having more money might not necessarily lead like yield happiness i guess for most people they don't spend it on things that are genuinely gratifying they're on this hedonic treadmill there's another use of the word hedonism Mm. they're on the hedonic treadmill and they'll they'll never earn enough to make them happy they'll 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 be happy the day that that money lands in their bank account or they get the promotion but then extremely quickly that becomes their normative amount of money and it's no longer pleasurable to be earning $407,000 $407,000 they want to earn $450,000 yeah um but but the, the the buying stuff for yours I guess if you're buying things for other people maybe that's in my head that's different to buying things for yourself no, see there's a distinction in, there I'm not interested in buying stuff I'm interested in making money there's a distinction right i don't okay. want i don't but, want but when toys. i said why do you want to earn money you said well because it enables you to buy stuff well yeah there's that there's that as well but no the challenge of pursuing it and making it is thrilling like i i'm not right. into stuff I, i'm not into toys and things like that i don't you know i i have no fantasies of buying a bow or buying a particular car but the the process of like building business making money that i find sort of thrilling mm, interesting yeah i that that makes sense um yeah it, it feels to me like you want to like you gain pleasure and gratification from achieving difficult things mm. and the measure the yardstick that you're using for whether something is difficult or not is can i have i made lots of money yeah um, yeah that makes sense so yeah I, yeah I'm, I'm not sure that we're necessarily disagreeing i i, I think that we're just um what money represents in each of our arguments is maybe slightly different yes i agree yeah yeah 
Yeah, cause, yeah, there is a lot of distinct. It's not as simple as just saying sort of money won't make you happy. That's a sort of oversimplified sort of view of it, isn't it? There's 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 many sort of factors within the the conversation in there of of what what it is about it that you know. What 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 we can say fairly empirically though is the amount of money that you have does not seem to correlate to happiness over and above a threshold so so not you ben or me mark but but people generally and because there's enough studies that have been done that prove this that shows that yeah that the amount of money that you have or that you earn is not correlated to your happiness there are many men there are just as many fucking miserable multi-millionaires and billionaires as there are um happy people living on the breadline yeah um, I, well I, not on the breadline but yeah 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 i accept that it, it doesn't guarantee happiness yeah it's in stuff <laughs> <laughs> we sort of rambled away from um, if, if i was to like summarize what was this podcast about or how to write a title for it <laughs> i'd be thinking yeah i'm not really sure we, we've sort of gone all over the place <laughs> so um, life and the pursuit of happiness maybe who are you listening to? Philosophy in a nutshell. Who, who am I re- listening reading to? Reading or listening to, um, yeah. So the person that I am the biggest fanboy of and have been listening to for the longest time is Sam Harris. I don't know if you listen or read Sam Harris. A little bit, but not a great deal. Um, yeah, so I think he's just all kinds of wonderful. Hmm. Um, I listen to lots of like psychedelic research, read, psych- like scientific papers um I, I used to like all of my reading used to be about becoming better at my job but over the last i don't know like three to five years i sort of feel like i'm good enough uh, i don't want to become any better really i think there's much more opportunity to be gained from reading works of philosophy or i, I read no fiction i'm a terrible fiction reader other than to my daughter at bedtime mm. um so yeah i listen to maybe i get through a book a week and um maybe like two or three hours of podcasts a day book um, a week a book a, yeah so i listen I typically listen to audiobooks on like two or three x speed um, so I'll get through like a seven to 11 hour book in a week. Wow. Um, plus, yeah, like two or three hours of podcasts a day. Again, listening at like double speed. It depends on the density of the information. Like if a book is really complicated, then I won't be able to listen at two or three X. But um, yeah, I'm I'm quite ravenous. When I was younger, like I never really read. I had no interest in books. So um, it's become like I've come to books only in the last like five years, really. And I'm, because I'm a really, really slow reader of like physical books, um, the advent of Audible um, has been transformative in terms of my personal growth. And mm. um, yeah, it's been uh, amazing. So, yeah, I would like definitely Sam Harris is up there. And then, um, and then there's like some stuff I listen to for pleasure as well. Like I'm a, I like at the Adam Buxton podcast um, oh, and that, the Richard Herring podcast. Yeah, they just sort of, um, you know, they make me feel happy just hearing their silly voices. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, I listen to like lots and lots of like business management, uh, the Andreessen Horowitz podcast, and the um, uh, Y Combinator stuff. Um, and then yeah, loads of psychedelic podcasts and books. Oh. How about you? What, what does Ben listen to? Well, I like Jordan Peterson. 
listen to him. Oh, interesting. Why do you like Jordan Peterson? Because I, I think the stuff he says about psychology sounds correct. It, it, it makes sense. In fact, I think he's had a big impact, a big positive impact on me. In uh, how has that impact manifested? Like uh, what, what what has what has changed about you since reading or listening to Jordan Peterson? Um, I think accepting it, and you talked about it earlier, sort of accepting that struggle and suffering is sort of part of life and there's no way avoiding it mm. that's a big part of it uh, are you familiar um so i've heard him interviewed on a bunch of different podcasts and then i started to read his is it 12 12 rules for life or 12 rules for life yeah and it was just i don't know that i'm I really struggle with organized religion and there was just a lot of like religious subtext that I, I struggled to get past. And then some of the ideas just felt a little, um, I'm not sure. Maybe I should reread it. Like it seems to really resonate with young white men. Um, and I am a, well, I'm maybe getting off a of middle age now, but I think I am still a young white man feel like it's i'm in the the target market for that book i should like it but um uh yeah i just haven't been it do you know what i think there's probably a bit of confirmation bias because i'm such a big sam harris fanboy and sam um has some thing he like sort of kind of disagrees with some of what um jordan peterson thinks i think i've just stupidly bought into that opinion well if sam disagrees then i must disagree mm. um and i need to go back and view it again maybe a, with a little more open-mindedness mm. but um that's interesting to hear that you you like him yeah but who else um i listened to stefan molyneux oh i've heard the name who, who is he he's a podcaster you probably recognize his face um he he does he does a lot of commentary on politics and current affairs but my favorite stuff of his is actually when he does a call-in show and he's talking about um people's childhood and relationship and sort of doing agony and kind of therapy kind of conversations ah, um interesting they're, they're, they're my favorite but <coughs> he's good um these I, are all... I don't listen to uh, or i the news and current affairs is almost completely eradicated from my life. Right. Um, I read an article by uh, Aaron Waltz, I think his name was. He was a, a hacker that committed suicide some time ago. And he wrote a blog post on how he completely eradicated news from his life. And I, I'm, I'm fairly sure that I'm less unhappy um, right. because I don't watch any news, never buy a newspaper. And the, the consequence is I'm fairly ignorant to current affairs, but I'm kind of okay with that. Yeah. It interested me when you said earlier that you, when you were doing the ayahuasca experience, you wanted to um, uh, see what the stock market and like to go onto Sky News. Um, and I never would have realized that you, Ben, were an avid news and current affairs digester. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's a great thing either. I, uh, definitely in moderation is a good idea. And mm. I wonder if I could live without it. I'm not sure. There's a the part of me that's hooked into it and is entertained by it, quite frankly. You know, yeah. um, I mean, I follow it out of interest, you know. And so I got mixed feelings about it. It's um, 
I, I, I've definitely gone through phases where I've got lost, gone down the rabbit hole of spending too much time watching conspiracy theories about the world. And, <laughs> and, and, I th- and I think I found a balance now between sort of, you know, living life and watching stuff that's nothing to do with my day to day life. So, you know, I'm not sure. I think I think there is a balance that works. Um, but but I do question you know the the negativity that it brings um, mm. I, i'm not sure about that just like you you juice fast that you did recently maybe you could have a current affairs fast for a couple <laughs> of weeks and just see how you feel at the end of it yeah i could do i could do yeah i'm not sure <laughs> it doesn't sound think. like you're that motivated to do it yeah so i'm not I sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't know you know there's part of me that likes to know but yeah that you know there could be something in that i'm undecided um mm. and also i listen to joe rogan um you know mm. which, which has got a lot of variety and by the way oh, i love listening to mike tyson because he's so kind of childlike and open and kind of pure he's so he's one of those people who just says whatever he's thinking and has no filter and and in a way because he kind of already proved how tough he is and how manly he is he's got this thing about him that he's got nothing to prove so there's a kind of simpleness to him and also he's been through a lot of trauma and suffering and grief and loss and and all that kind of thing so i find him really fascinating so if i wanted to listen to one mike tyson podcast what what, which one would you recommend Oh, I'll have to think about that. There was a documentary about 10 years ago that was good. Um, and ah, okay. He, and he's he's very emotionally lucid as well. He'll get emotional from one sentence to the next. He'll start crying and then oh. like in, in every interview he gets emotional. So he's quite fascinating. He's sort of... And there's a kind of... What I get from it, there's a kind of permission that comes from it. It's like just because you're emotional, just because you've suffered or stuff that's bothering you doesn't mean you're not a man doesn't mean you're not tough doesn't mean you know doesn't mean those kind of things that's what he kind of resembles to me you know interesting oh that's nice yeah i've never i know very little of mike tyson so yeah i'm intrigued now to go and find out more yeah yeah so there's that and what else do i listen well on a different tact abraham which is more of a spiritual thing you familiar no, I'm guessing it stems from the Abrahamic religions. Um, actually, no. Abraham Hicks is, is a woman who claims to channel this spirit called Abraham, right? Okay, now, it sounds pretty wacky. Yeah, it is pretty wacky. And I think the best way of... I just ignore that and just the the words and the advice that she comes out with, I find very sort of soothing and useful and positive. And I wouldn't say... I don't think you can just live your life by that alone, but I think it's very helpful. If I think if you're feeling stressed or feeling negative, then Abraham brings a kind of soothing reassurance and positivity, which can be really, which has been really useful. Mm. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. I think I'll dip into Mike Tyson before I dip into <laughs> yeah. uh, people channeling spirits. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, yeah. Yeah, maybe. But one one thing that like two years ago, I was about as devout an atheist as you would find. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons I sort of fell in love with Sam Harris. But following like a meditation practice and doing this psilocybin experience, I'm definitely much more open minded to 
yeah like, i i don't know what the true nature of existence is but i i feel a, a little less close-minded about different ideas behind spirituality um so yeah that's been quite a useful thing i guess to be more open-minded about something yeah yeah because being like there's two ends of the spectrum in there you can be so open-minded that you're just gullible and naive and you believe everything and you've got very little rationality or objectivity but then at the other end of the spectrum you can be so skeptical that you believe that only the stuff that you understand exists and nothing outside of it does you know so and, and there's mm. i think it's good to just you know be somewhere a bit in the middle isn't it sort of open-minded and rationally skeptical as well i think the, the two aren't mutually exclusive in terms of open-minded and rationally skeptical i think like having views that you're not prepared to change feels like the opposite of um open-minded right and um i again as you suggested there are some things for which it's probably not worth spending a lot of like there are some opinions that you hold that you're it's probably okay that you never entertain whether you're wrong about those opinions yeah um but then mo most things in life i try i'd much rather be on the open-minded end of the spectrum than on the the fixed uh closed-minded end of the spectrum i'd rather always be open to being proven wrong and as a consequence spend an awful lot of like cognitive energy constantly reevaluating things mm. um than uh, yeah I, I think that like, for me that's a happy compromise yeah um yeah, I'd rather be right than wrong but certain. Um, uh, or rather, maybe, maybe a better way of explaining it is, I'd rather be right but confused than certain and wrong. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same. By the way, how has mm. fatherhood changed you? Oh, man. Um, we're going to need another hour or two. Um, it has it's definitely made me so when my daughter was first born um i still like i was the number one person in my life for the first probably couple of years which i think is relatively unusual well i don't know the story that you hear is as a father once you hold your child in your arms for the first time then your world is completely changed forever blah 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 blah. i didn't have that at all like for the first year my daughter was largely a massive inconvenience and the thing that jeopardized my own self-actualization um and then it's only in the last like few years that i've realized kind of how wrong that not wrong because there's no right or wrong but it's definitely changed for me and i now definitely care much more about my daughter's happiness than i do my own um although that it's not you know oh, my headphones are making funny noises saying that they're about to die so i might just switch headphones a second can still hear you can you hear me uh, i can now yeah um uh, okay you know uh, what that just made me think of something did did that come with any sense of guilt the fact that you felt you should be like initially yeah, when you're tremendous yeah you know earlier you asked me about my therapy and you said what was the main things you got from it um i, I just one of the main things was realizing that it was not the particular events but the whole story 
on top of it which was where most of the suffering was like like shame guilt humiliation what that meant what what the implications were of that all that story is where like 90 percent of the suffering was that the actual the actual objective events that happened were actually you know a little bit of suffering do you see what i mean and so that's what made it me think of that when you said that i i didn't quite understand could you could you run through that again so certain events that happen might be painful like somebody might betray you or you might get rejected or whatever you might get abused whatever but then the the meanings that we make of that what that means and the story the story we create is where we can get stuck in the suffering in in, in that story so what i realized from the therapy is like 90% of the story uh, sorry i beg your pardon 90% of the suffering was in what i was making it mean yeah like, like that shouldn't have happened i shouldn't have let that happen i shouldn't feel this way i'm ashamed of doing that you know i that, that's where all the suffering was not in the actual event do you see what i mean absolutely yeah that totally resonates but even though so i i was kind of like really into stoicism for about a year and sto like a, a big part of stoicism is that the suffering is caused by the stories that we tell ourselves not by the actual events as they occur which is sort of what, what you were just saying but even though today i know that intellectually i know that the suffering is being caused by the story that i'm telling myself i can't seem to stop telling myself those stories I don't know if you experienced that, whether did that like cure it for you when you knew? Yeah, it did, because there's something about be being becoming aware of it that sort of takes away, that drains the power from it. Once you're aware of something and a pattern, that largely eradicates it, or that was my experience. Interesting. It's while it's unconscious that it controls you and drives you and rules you. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you're saying that's not the case for you? Um, no. So, so it, it, when I when I so I discovered stoicism after reading um, "Happy" by Darren Brown, and mm. I'd never thought that like a magician would be so influential in terms of my psychological uh, happiness. But the book was really transformative for me. It's it's been the most important book that I've ever read. I think, um, uh, and. For the first year or two after I read the book, it, I was able to like intellectual intellectualize my or think ration. Um, if I was telling myself a story about an event and was getting really upset about it, um, I was able to see that rationally and then stop myself from having those irrational thoughts. Mm. Uh, but then that seemed to fade away after a few years. And I've reread the book three times subsequently, and it has less and less of an effect on me each time I read it. I, I'm no longer able to say to myself, Mark, there's no evidence for you to, like like this th theory that I, I'm disliked at work and I'm constantly doing a, a bad job. Like I can say to myself rationally, Mark, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that those things are true. So don't tell yourself that story. But yeah, I still lie in bed awake at night for hours and hours and hours telling myself those stories, even though I know that I'm the one that's fabricating these stories and they're not necessarily representative of reality. I can't escape it anymore. Oh, is, is that because you haven't figured out where that originated or is it just are they just deeply ingrained and hard to 
throw off? I have no idea, buddy. I really don't. Again, I'm sort of hopeful that this experience in October is going to uncover some of or help me to understand. Um, is it that I've not, I, like you just said, have I just not identified the thing? And once identified, it will start to dissolve or no, it's really, really deeply ingrained and it will never, ever go away. I, I really don't know. I wish I did. There's something relieving. Hang on. Let me, what am I trying to say here? not quite sure how to put it but when you ac accept your suffering you kind of free yourself like whilst you're in the tussle like i need to get rid of this suffering i need to get rid of this suffering this isn't the way it should be i should be peaceful there's a there's a fight and a battle in that and i i, I don't know how to phrase it exactly but you can kind yeah. of come to peace with it and and kind of accept it's never going to go away do you know what i mean yeah. And again, like I kind of know that rationally and intellectually, and I've heard enough people say that you, you need to just accept your suffering and accept the things that have happened in the past and accept that anxiety or pain or anger are part of my life. But knowing it intellectually is different from feeling it phenomenologically to use another like Mm. fancy unused word uh yeah I, I like i i get that it makes complete sense and um, i heard a beautiful talk between sam harris and this um buddhist uh tibetan uh teacher where he was talking about changing his own relationship with pain and suffering and and he, the, the the one of the most instrumental things was like accepting the um panic for him panic was the was the thing to be avoided and mm. um, so it makes complete sense but i just can't seem to accept i don't want to accept the anxiety i don't know yeah. maybe that's why i haven't accepted it because i don't want to i don't want this anxiety to be to be part of my life yeah i mean with my stuff it wasn't anxiety so it's different but that, that, that was part of it like i went from like oh i need to get rid of these feelings these sort of painful memories and stuff i need to get rid of this i went to a place i got to a place of i'm never getting rid of those feelings never ever they're never going away and i accept that and ironically there's they kind of go away you know it's sort of a paradox yeah. isn't it? It, it it's yeah. it takes the sting out of them like they're never going i can't change that and i accept that and that's actually a better that feels better you know yeah interesting so maybe for me the i'm sort of self-diagnosing now with your help but maybe the thing that is causing this anxiety is guilt or something else mm. and i need to identify what that is and then accept it and then maybe the anxiety will go i i don't know but um yeah i some i i often wonder um like how much um like the the sorts of hedonism that uh, I'm going to sound really mean now, maybe to, towards certain groups of people. But like, if you in, if the thing that you enjoy most in life is like you go to work, finish work, have a few beers with your mates, and then you go home and stick Coronation Street on and read some trashy shit, and and you seem to generally be happy. I I often thought, oh, being you know the the pseudo intellectual, I don't want that. That's a shallow form of happiness. I want a deeper form of happiness where I'm interested in smart things, not watching Coronation street or mm. eastenders and reading trashy magazines but 
I, I don't know. I, I have a bit of cognitive dissonance where I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, if the thing that you actually want is to not suffer and to be happy, maybe it would have been better to be born into that world where you, the thing that you desire is to just go for drinks with your mates after work and then watch Coronation Street. Um, maybe, maybe it is better to have a simpler form of existence, a less intellectual growth oriented form of existence mm. i don't know oh yeah i'm with you yeah i relate i relate to that that battle between like you know i look at i'll just say normal people it's like these <laughs> motherfuckers they they just go out they get drunk they have a good time they do fuck all they're not you know they're not changing the world and these motherfuckers are happier than me and i'm sort of yeah trying to strike yeah. and, and um it's not fair <laughs> yeah yeah why can't i just be a dumb motherfucker like them yeah then I'd be yeah, happy, yeah yeah you know yeah and there's something but maybe they're in... smarter than us <laughs> yeah they're, they're, but yeah there's something in that in there there's something i don't know yeah. what the answer is but there's some path in between but like that 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 goes back to the thing I was saying about surround, being surrounded by people that I was not like-minded with. Like, now mm. I feel I'm more in a place where I've got more like-minded friends and I feel understood and they understand me and I feel like I've got... Whereas in the past... You know these these fucking yoga people. They di- they were into all kinds of shit that I went into, like ve- going on vegan retreats and going on yoga retreats to Bali and like and um, environmentalism and stuff that I just didn't care about. And I felt really I wanted to connect with them and have friends and stuff, but I couldn't connect with them because I had no interest in anything they were interested in, and I was in that constant um, sort of. So deadline. why do you think you were drawn to these? communities in the first place then given that you seem to identify with being a a rational capitalist yeah good question that's something i'm still trying to figure out i'm not sure i'm not Mm. sure entirely i i'm not sure yeah interesting when you say that's something i'm still trying to figure out like are you trying to figure it out or are you happy to not to have that piece of the puzzle missing yeah i don't know i don't know that's that, i'm still in that process i'm not sure mm. cool <laughs> well that's been a great conversation mark cheers yeah no i've really enjoyed it very much it's um yeah it's been really it's been therapeutic which is always good well that's what happens when you have good proper conversations with good proper people (laughs) (laughs) Um, that would be a really lame but accurate title for your podcast (laughs) good proper conversations with good proper people (laughs) yeah i've enjoyed it well keep you updated about everything that's going on you know if there's any events or anything i'll I'll come and get involved so you know keep me in the loop sounds good mate definitely will do all right mark okay nice talking to you yeah you too buddy take it easy bye bye bye